Okay, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilder, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Meredith Hammer-Brown, an actor and filmmaker whose first feature, Seagrass, stars Ali Mackey and Luke Roberts as struggling parents whose trip to a counseling retreat exposes further fractures in their family. It's a terrific picture, and its TIFF premiere last year kicked off a wonderful festival run that led to a slot in Canada's top 10 last month, and an American premiere at the Santa Barbara Film Festival just last week. It's opening across North America this Friday, February 23rd, and in Toronto you can see it at the TIFF Lightbox, where Meredith and cinematographer Norm Lee will be joining me for a Q&A at the 2.30pm show on Sunday the 25th. You should come! Meredith picked The Red Shoes, the 1948 backstage drama from Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, better known as The Archers. It's the tale of Victoria Page, a promising ballerina who finds herself torn between Boris Lermontov, a producer determined to shape her talent in a way that serves his vision, and only his vision, and Julian Craster, a composer bent on perfection at any cost. Also, there's a pair of ballet shoes that can make Victoria dance perfectly at a terrible cost. Maurice Shearer, Anton Wahlberg, and Marius Goring play out this toxic creative triangle within a magnificent, slightly stylized world created by production designer Hank Heckrock and the legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff, and Powell and Pressburger bring it all to rich, pulsing life. In a word, it's art. This is someone else's movie. Yeah, I think The Red Shoes is just a film that I find really fascinating. And it's something that I have, I didn't watch until maybe uh, a year ago. Oh. And since then, I've now seen it three times. <laughs> I just find it to be like really um, full of a lot of interesting complexities and I do kind of find these older uh, 1940s films really intriguing in the sense that in many ways they're so outdated and sometimes they're still super relevant. And I just love to kind of see, uh, yeah, uh, how that plays out in through a modern perspective. Um, and yeah, there's something that's really interesting to me also about the fact that it's a fable within a ballet within a film I find that really fascinating and I'm sure we'll we'll dive in more to kind of the ballet especially but I think it's a really intriguing uh segment in the film and something I really love as well. Oh yeah, it's yeah. um what made you I'm I'm just really curious why last year what what made you catch it all of a sudden? What, what how did you catch up to it? I yeah, it's it's weird because it's known to be kind of, you know, it's in all of these lists of hundred best films ever. And I think I was just looking for something to watch one day and I was like, okay, it's time. It's time to see this. Um, and yeah, I, I very much enjoyed it, found it to be such a strange film. And, and I think I'm really drawn to strange <laughs> things. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely fulfilled that, that for me. <laughs> Oh, I'm so glad you got to come to it as an adult, though, and bring in all the things that you you've acquired over, you know, like the, the the experience, the knowledge that we accrue over life. I saw it in '92 or '94, maybe whenever the Criterion Laser just came out. Right, and it was great, but I was in my twenties, and yeah. <laughs> I know I responded to it just on the like the most base level of this is a story about somebody being mean to somebody else. Like I didn't. Yeah. Know and you're like that's not nice yeah <laughs> but it would be so i you know i've been reading kind of about different people's perspectives on the film of course and um it's really interesting hearing about some people who watched it as a child 
and grew up watching it even and how their perspective on the film became more complex over time. And of course, watching it as an adult, I don't have that. I just have my adult perspective. Um, so it's interesting to think about like, how would I have seen this as a child? Because it is very much like a fable, you know, like you said, it's kind of about this, these kind of core uh, feelings of, oh, this per this person is being a bully. Um, but I think probably watching it as an adult, you see sort of that it, it does in many ways also stray away from that simplicity in a lot of, in a lot of ways through the characters, like, you know, Lermontov is, could easily be seen as a villain, but in some ways he has these moments of, of kindness or where you see a softer side to him. Like when he decides to, um, you know, he's debating about whether he should keep Vicky under contract and he ultimately feels he can't do it. Um, and then you see Julian, who seems like this total sweetheart, but then we see later on that he's really just as controlling as Lermontov. So I think that's kind of maybe the perspective that as an adult, uh, we we start to, um, yeah, that an adult might might see a bit more clearly. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, someone like Martin Scorsese seeing this as a young, as a kid um, yeah. and, and ingesting it like a Disney film. Right. right? Like where it's, it's, it's all primary colors and primal feeling and emotion. And I'm sure he saw it clearly. Uh, he's, he speaks of it over and over again as, a, as right. a formative text, right? Even though he's never made a movie, even New York, New York doesn't look like a Paolo Pressburger film. It's, it's still him mm -hmm. doing his own thing. Uh, yeah. He's never made a movie like it, but it is, you can feel its heart running through so much stuff that he's done. Mm -hmm. And the, the sense I had was like, I was receiving a classic that, that, you know, the Criterion brand was telling me this was a really important classic. work. And, and I liked Powell and Pressburger, what I'd seen of them, uh, but yeah. I'd never managed to see the red shoes in a theater or anything like that. And I, or, mm -hmm. or on television. And so coming to it as this, this mandated piece of culture, yeah. uh, I think I was also in my mid twenties and I was a, kind of my back was up at a lot of the idea that this was received wisdom, but it got me, it won me over. I still don't think I yeah. understood its complexities until about 15 years later, but yeah. it's, you can boil it down to art versus life the way that, uh, mm -hmm. the way the Wikipedia does, but the way that, uh, yeah. and the way the characters constantly discuss it, the, yeah, the philosophies do. that are thrown back and forth mm -hmm. in, this, in this love triangle. But that was the thing that struck me most on the most recent rewatch when the 4k disc came out, I think, two years ago, um, mm. the, the life of the mind that is happening for all three characters who, who live in their heads in ways that actually interfere with their, with their physical lives, with their practical lives. And since Vicky is a, uh, you know, she's a dancer, but she also lives to be around artists and mm. keeps putting herself in positions where maybe she's going to be exploited for her talent, but she'll be exploited by masters of the art. So it's worth right. it. And that that's the push-pull that I didn't even mm -hmm. really notice the first time. I mean, I, I just sort of dismissed it going through as, oh yeah, well, that's that's an art, that's a story about artists being mm -hmm. pretentious and and you know fussing over right. what's truly important. And now that I've got some years on me, <laughs> I think yeah. art is all we have. And yeah. and I sort of get it. I I I definitely empathize with Victoria way more than I had beforehand. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that it's interesting how 
you know, early on in the film, uh, Lermontov asked Vicky, uh, you know, why do you dance? And she says, why do you live? And I think that really kind of sums up. And then as the film progresses, she evolves as a person and gains this new sense of life. But it's almost like her reason for being is art and for someone, her partner to try to, you know, take that away from her is, is very cruel as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he keeps saying he wants what's best for her. And I yeah. kind of believe him. I mean, I certainly believe Julian more than I believe Lermontov. I, I don't know. Like when I, <laughs> I mean, I think they're both kind of assholes, but like, sure. yeah. <laughs> but like, I get what you're saying for sure. Cause I mean, Julian is certainly easier to like, but what I find most intriguing, one of the things I find most intriguing about the film is the themes around power and control and also like the themes around being a woman, which is very complex. And, um, you know, I've been reading a lot of articles about it uh, just to kind of wrap my head around it. But one of the things, you know, coming back to, we can get back to that after, but around uh, power and control is watching it this last time, I was like, you know, Julian at the end, he's being so manipulative. <laughs> and it's interesting when he goes into her change room and says, you know, I can't even live without you. And she doesn't repeat that back. You know, he's not really actually seeing her. He's not really seeing her at all. And I think that's really um, kind of interesting because a part of me thinks that she was happier when she had dance than she had the relationship. You know, you see their married life and it doesn't really look all that great. So it's like, if she can't have the things that she needs most in life, she she would never be happy in that relationship. And he's truly failing to see that. And his career could have kept going. And just because he's willing to let it go, doesn't mean she wants to, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I mean, both Lermontov and, and Julian are controlling. I mm. think the difference is that Lermontov knows he's being controlling and Julian totally. thinks he's being a good guy, which makes totally. him more interesting, right? But still just as much of a villain as, as far as Victoria is concerned. And then absolutely, whether the shoes are evil is almost irrelevant. Like every, I mean, the, the curse of the red shoes bleeding yeah. into, into life as opposed to just something that, you know, is a harmless superstition that helps, helps her focus or perform. Mm -hmm. Um, the fact that that's left ambiguous while everything else is concrete, like the damage that the people do to one another, the damage that humans do to one another is so much more profound than the damage that an object might do. Yeah, that's interesting because I think, you know, everyone is sort of like, oh, was it the shoes or was it her committing, you know, um, a fully conscious suicide and or being driven to that by these two kind of controlling men? And yeah, you're absolutely right. It doesn't really matter, does it? Because it is so much about everything else. And in a sense, I think sometimes metaphors in films, like they should almost be read as both. Like, you know, the power of the red shoes, if it is the red shoes, is truly representational of what it represents. So it, it, it's like, it's both, right? <laughs> the red shoes equals all of these things. 
Yeah, it's something that you can fixate on, but I, I don't think that you can assign it blame. I mean, it's it's funny, too, because, of course, this is a movie that was released in 1948, just after the war, where everything had portent and and everything was symbolic and meaningful. And it was just the, the narrative style of the time, too, right? If you make oh, yeah. a movie about art, you're going to use these big, splashy metaphors and symbols. Mm-hmm. And the, the strength of Powell and Pressburger, I think, is that they could always translate symbolic metaphoric constructs into something immediate and powerful. I mean, like the way a matter of life and death is maybe the most beautiful fantasy um, of death ever constructed, I think, because it's so British, because it's so understated, right? Like they're, they're the cultural tendency towards downplaying anything meaningful yeah. and, and, you know, putting up a, putting up a, I don't know, straighten up and fly right. Um, that's not the right phrase, yeah. but but uh, keeping calm and carrying on, all these things, the, the ways to repress trauma that that are culturally ingrained in the English. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here you just have, as with um, uh, Tales of Hoffman, you just have people's hearts bursting out of them in this massive expression that can only happen through dance, through through the, mm-hmm. the ballet, but they're, the characters are using the ballet as the excuse to explode just as much mm-hmm. as the actors are using the project. And yeah. The, and the, the directors. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you're, you're in this heightened world from the, from the jump, but it's also, it has its own rules, right? Like it, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the rules of, of performance keep coming in and, and informing these perform the actors performances as their characters. I just, it's, it's a hall of mirrors in the most fascinating British way. Yeah. And speaking of Hall of Mirrors, I think that um, something that really stands out to me in the film is, of course, the ballet sequence, which I think has so many, um, you know, the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, I'm seeing this beautiful ballet sequence. And what stood out most on first watch was just how subjective it becomes. Um, You know, it's certainly not based in realism. And I found that very intriguing. And then watching it the next couple of times, I was just, you know, really um, interested in how it parallels the real characters' lives, how it it mirrors, but also foreshadows, um, but not really in as much of a straightforward way as, as you might think. Like, you know, on one hand, it seems like the shoemaker is Lermontov, the lover is Julian, And to me, that also very much represents like the angel and devil on her shoulder. And you really see that in the kind of climactic scene where they're both literally, it feels like on her shoulders, you know, sort of trying to, trying to sway her towards their direction. But what's so interesting is that one uh, part where they superimpose over the shoemaker, uh, Lermontov's image, and then Julian's image. (laughs) And it's like, you know, because a part of me when I watch the film, I'm like, is this like just something where um, from a current day perspective, we're seeing that they're both being controlling, but the the filmmakers were kind of like, no, like Julian's actually the good guy. But I think there's definitely some clear um, cues in the film that show that it is very much intentional. And that's one of them for me, where it's like, no, no, they know. <laughs> they're in on it as well. Cause a part of me was just like, this is just like, you know, what was expected of women of the time that they'll just get married. And like, that's almost the virtuous choice from their perspective. And you see, you know, in the ballet, 
the lover and he's associated with the church and like, yeah, I just find that uh, to be an interesting way that they, they shook things up in the, in the ballet. Yeah. They, as filmmakers that the, the layering they do Mm -hmm. with personal narratives like for every character and motivation and then bringing it all out in the abstract in, mm -hmm. in, a, in a ballet sequence it's it's amazing it's it's remarkable too that i was raised on the mgm musicals with dance with huge dance numbers you know like singing in the rain and and the bandwagon the films that just stopped dead for 15 to 17 minutes i think it's mm -hmm. an audrey hepburn one too is it funny face where it's just like we're only going to dance now and yeah i love it <laughs> They're, they're great. No problem with that. Yeah, they're great. But the American ones never played out the, the it's funny, they never dealt with the storylines they were spinning out. They were just like dropping in these ballets yeah. to show the audience what ballet looked like. And Powell and Pressburger used it to amplify and expand on narrative mm -hmm. in a way that I just think like the, it felt like the MGM musicals weren't interested in it, that mm -hmm. it was just a response to the red shoes that mm -hmm. this is, Oh, you can do that. Okay. We're going to do that. We're going to make it the climax. We're going to give a, it's, it's the big showstopper number, yeah. you know, um, even star is even a star is born. The, the 54 version with Mason and Garland has born in a trunk to end the first act where right. you actually do sort of recap the movie you've seen in a, in a stylistic way. And right. this film is just like, no, no, it's not some text anymore. It's they're dancing the text. Yeah. And it's up yeah. to the audience to pay attention, which is so great. Totally. It's like, let's just not have these rules. And I think it's interesting that there was actually quite a bit of criticism for the film about this. And I'm like, but that's the best part. <laughs> like, that's what's good about it. That's what's so, so interesting about it is that they break these rules. Um, something else I find really interesting about the the ballet and the, the film itself is... I read the um, Hans Christian Andersen story and, you know, it really is this cautionary tale about um, the evils of, you know, in the story, the, the, the character's name is Karen instead of Vicky and Karen is um, really vain and she wants these red shoes and it's, you know, I'm sure there's a message around, you know, female sexuality as well. Um, but it's like she's very much portrayed as doing something wrong or bad. And in the end, she pays the ultimate price. Her feet are cut off. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. um, but what I find really interesting about the film, as well as probably the ballet, is that they really, Vicky is not portrayed as someone who is doing something wrong or bad. And I think that's really central to, um, I think that's really like a really important part of the story because, and I think it really does tie into sort of this um, way that the film views women. Like on one hand, I think it's, it's quite complex because a very simple reading of it could be like, Oh, if, if women follow their passions, they're going to be punished in this really horrible, violent way. Mm -hmm. But I think there's um, a lot more to it in the sense that like, really the men are the villains in this, like even after her, groundbreaking performance uh one of the the ballet instructor asks her if her head is you know if, if her head is getting um blown up or if she's feeling egotistical and she says no not at all and you can tell it's it's genuine and I think that 
Um, that's something that I think is a key to like the viewpoint of women in the story is like, she's not wrong for doing this. You know, we're sympathizing with her. We want her to succeed in both if that's what she wants. And it's really just the men who are stopping her from this. And it's only because they want her to do what they want her to do. Right. Yeah. It's really that simple. Both otherwise. <laughs> yeah. You there's know? no there's no integration of of her life into theirs or her desires into theirs because yeah mm-hmm. I mean in either case there's the possibility for true collaboration right for a real partnership and she totally. she just isn't given that option yes exactly yeah so that is definitely um, and then in the ballet too I was kind of thinking like how does that translate to the ballet itself is it the same. Um, and it's hard to say, but I really don't think the ballet shows, uh, you know, the ballet's protagonist as, you know, in anything than than being kind of joyful, right? Um, so, yeah, it's it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the one time that she's purely happy, mm-hmm. right? Um, both yeah. Vicky and her character, if character. she has a character, whoever she's supposed to be in this ballet, uh, that is a reflection of her, a refraction of her own life. She mm-hmm. she hasn't yet hit the roadblocks that are coming, mm-hmm. um, and she can just exist in the music in the moment on the stage, and mm-hmm. and you know Moira Shear is just so joyful, so so mm-hmm. radiant in this, yeah. and even as uh, the character gains a more tortured affect over the over the course of the film, but you see the potential in mm-hmm. this in a way that we're not allowed to see in the real quote unquote real world. And it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's so instantly powerful immediately, just from the very beginning, you understand what's going on, where the, where the mm-hmm. film is taking us and taking her. Mm-hmm. And it's just radiant. Yeah. And I think that is such an, uh, a very important part as well is that they cast uh, ballet dancers over actors and oh, yeah. No, she happened to be able to act, but I think that is really central to why, um, as a viewer, we respect her and her journey so much, um, is she's just so blatantly talented. And I think that really helps to demonstrate why we're, we're all rooting for her, um, and why, like, she doesn't at all, of course, deserve this, this fate, like, um, that, that comes upon her in the end. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I spun up the new releases of Sofia Coppola's Priscilla from Elevation and Nia DaCosta's The Marvels from Disney, and I'm currently about halfway through Sony's latest Columbia Classics 4K Megaset, so you can look forward to that. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Simcast Blue Sky account. You like reading about movies, I like writing about them. Come check it out. You know, it's a melodrama, it's tragedy, it's, I, I was sort of jokingly once said that it's their version of a woman's picture of the time, mm-hmm. you know, like where where there cannot be a happy ending mm-hmm. because that's just not what the genre demands, but they're inventing the genre here. There, There is a chance, like you, that there's a genuine sense that it might work out for most of the film, that if, if one piece falls right, if one decision could be made differently over and over and over again, we're given this 
this hope. And it's, I think, yeah. because the Archers, Powell and Pressburger, were such optimistic filmmakers, especially, you know, given where England was at the moment and, and how how elegant their storytelling is. It feels like one of the few tragedies that is even is all the more tragic because it didn't have to be tragic. Like it's not it's not a Stella Dallas yeah. where you know that whatever happens she's going to walk away at the end or or you know in any one of a million tuberculosis movies that were mm-hmm. happening around the same time, um, and I think that's why it endures, uh, okay. not just because it it looks and sounds and feels like nothing else, yeah, <laughs> uh, except there are other ballet movies. Um, it just. It, there's, you know, there's the joke about somebody going to see Rocky for the eighth time and, you know, and somebody mm-hmm. says, but you you know how it ends. It's like, yeah, but maybe this time he wins. Um, yeah. <laughs> the Red Shoes has the same, has that effect on me when yeah. I watch it. I, I, I always forget it's a tragedy. I, right. I, I've seen it straight through now, maybe four times over the years and in, in pieces right. elsewhere. And it's just like, oh no, it's, oh, that's right. This doesn't work. Oh anymore. yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's well, heartbreaking. Think, yeah. It, it's one of those tragedies where you know, for the first half, you really enjoy watching it. It's actually so beautiful and fun and alive and, and you're excited for the characters. Um, but yeah, and I think that's a really interesting part of the structure as well, is that it's so divided. It's almost like cut in half by the musical sequence. The first half is just pure joy and excitement. And, you know, we're, we're moving with the characters towards their dreams. And then it's like the second half is just like, oh, never mind. Everything is going to go crashing <laughs> down. And this person who's amazing is going to die. Yeah. So yeah, it really does a 180. But in a in an artistically honest way, that's the thing, yeah. right? Like it, it earns the tragedy in a way that a lot of other films just, you know, assume that that's where it's going to end up and predetermined. And, and yeah, what are you going to do? This mm-hmm. one feels like loss. This one actually feels like you're watching someone be destroyed, which again, shouldn't be as ecstatic as it is. Mm-hmm. But it's the thing that, I mean, people are divided about Black Swan, for example, right. just for another story about a dancer who destroys herself. But yeah. <laughs> it, it's it felt to me that Darren Aronofsky was having fun with the idea. Like, yeah. There's a nihilistic glee in that movie and in Portman's performance and in this sort of bending reality thing that he does where you know, I don't think Darren Aronofsky makes movies with happy endings. It's fine. Oh. Like, they're they're transcendent. beginnings. <laughs> Fair point. Yes. They're yeah. transcendent <laughs> in different ways though. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this one, this is a movie about someone who doesn't need to die no. for art but no, that's what happens. Not at all, because, yeah, that's a really interesting point because in Black Swan, Natalie Portman's character is like, yeah, I never really feel like we see her living her passion or loving dancing. Do we? I don't, I'm trying to think back, but for me, when I think back to the film, I just think of the anxiety that it causes her the entire time and the pressure. And certainly that is a part of, of, any artist's journey, it's, it, it can be hard. And, and that's like, you know, but hopefully the joy that you have while doing it balances that. And I think that, you know, I don't think it's unrealistic in Black Swan either. Cause I think for a lot of artists, their journey is just pure <laughs> pain and at, at least at different times. Right. And we're seeing that time where she's under a lot of press pressure and she's being asked to kind of raise the bar in a way that she doesn't know how. And I think that's, that's a very valid part of, 
an artist's um, journey. But yeah, in the red shoes, we really see how she she can kind of um, move past that. You know, before doing the ballet, she's so nervous that she forgets her first step, but then she goes out and it's not just that she excels, but she excels with joy, which is wonderful to see. Yeah, the idea of work that sustains you as an artist mm -hmm. is something that rarely gets, I mean, it's not sexy anymore, right? Like we've, we've internalized, mm -hmm. I think. <laughs> I think you have the to method, struggle. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the method really pushed that in, right? Or people uh, have to struggle to be artists to to mm -hmm. find the to find the real art. You have to maim yourself emotionally or physically and just push through. Like ballet dancers are destroying their bodies for this, but um, but it doesn't have to be that way. And now it feels radical to suggest that maybe the thing you can do is enjoy the work. Um, yeah, <laughs> which is like how we came around to that again. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah, we need to find our way back to that. I think. Yeah, well, I mean, the happiest people in the arts that I know are people who do the thing that they love, um, but don't need to torture themselves about it. And the art can be, you know, it's it's like the we've just done an episode of Midnight Cowboy and the you know the story of Dustin Hoffman putting rocks in his shoes so he could walk with the proper limp as as Ratso Rizzo. Uh -huh. It's like I get it. I understand it, but also you can fake that. Like there is a way. Yeah. And he don't mess up your feet. Yeah. And he incorporates yeah. a, a gate that feels natural. And by the middle of the movie, you don't think about it anymore. And I'm hoping that the stories of the rocks was just like for one day to okay. figure it out. So he doesn't, you know, do real damage to himself. But, but the idea that that somehow, you know, that people confuse most acting with best acting and that the right. idea of, of, showing people just how much suffering you're doing. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis can learn to go off and make shoes for a role. And it, no, I don't think anybody gets hurt in the process. Yeah. But or didn't people, Leonardo DiCaprio eat like... Oh, the 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 beef liver thing? The like a lot? I don't know. Something, I didn't, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't. I, he's. I thought he was a vegan. Maybe it was a. Maybe it was vegan liver. But, well, anything for the role. Well, but that's it, right? Yeah. And, and then that that fuels the next person who learns, who internalizes that, and decides that he's going to go. You know, I don't know. Maybe I'll numb my foot with Novocaine for a day so I can limp convincingly. And, yeah. and I'm sure someone's done it, right? Like I, I, yeah. I, I just actually no, that's not true. If someone had done it, we'd know about it because that's part of the story. But the yeah. idea that you know you can assemble people to make a movie about art that doesn't require them to be in wallow pain. in misery. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, The Red Shoes is a sad film in the end, but I don't get this feeling that it was anything but joyous on set, that these people were making yeah. something that they knew would be genuinely precious. Absolutely. And even the way that art is portrayed in the film, I mean, of course, coming back to the fact that we see uh, Vicky's character just truly loving what she does, but really the stress, like the real stress and pain in the movie does not come from anything to do so much with the art. It really comes from these toxic interpersonal relationships mm -hmm. because yes, to a certain point, there will always be someone who pushes you like Lermontov, but it's really the extent that he does it. And, you know, he validates that as saying, oh, but like, this is the best, like, this is the best ballet company. And who knows? I mean, we don't know. We don't see other ballet productions, but it it does seem like maybe there's some truth to that because she truly agrees with it and misses it. But 
aside from that, it's really just this, this, these people wanting to control her that actually creates the pain. It's not her stress. It's not her rising to the challenge. Like we see her struggle a bit, but that's not true pain. That's, that's pushing oneself to become better. Right. And it, it's very much shown to be that. Yeah. And it is helping. Like it does help mm. her. The, the, the stress yeah. that she puts on herself is the thing that purifies her art. Yes. But no one, yeah, no one notices it. I think that's the other thing. Like they just see the performance. They don't see the suffering. And, no, and so, exactly. you know, and Julian can later make a big show of saying, I understand what you do and it hurts you and I want you to stop so we can have a normal life together. But mm -hmm. she seems to be okay with it. Like she's not, once, once she's, once she's found that engine, she doesn't mm -hmm. go back to punishing herself. Like that's the most mm -hmm. radical break from the, from the, the, the sort of stricture of these, of this genre that we always see where you just have to keep going to more, that's the black swan thing. You just have to go to more and more extreme lengths in order to get right. the thing. But once you know how to do it, you can do it. And that's you what, can it. Yeah. yeah, that's what this movie is arguing for a sense of acknowledgement that the work can be done and then but you can grow. Yeah. And, and you can be empowered. You can build on the foundation rather than destroy yourself uh to you know, it. it's it's the reverse like it's the what oh the metaphor of the sculptor chipping away at the at the marble to find the art inside and it's like well no, no no she did the other thing she built the art on top of herself and now she is more of a person she's she's fulfilled mm -hmm. instead of hollowed out mm -hmm. exactly because that's um yeah that's a really good point about comparing comparing it there with black swan as well because you know she's pushing and pushing and pushing and then after the ballet it's really smooth sailing in terms of what she's doing. She's a sensation. She's not stressed anymore. As far as we can see, everything is going extremely well. And I think, yeah, isn't that a beautiful way to show art and artists is that you can kind of, you know, you push yourself, but at some point you can get to a place where, where you actually feel good and can just be in the flow of what you're doing. And you're right, a lot of films don't show art that way. They show it more in the sense that it will tear you apart, basically. Yeah. What was it Cassavetti said? It was the constant forge where okay. you're you're forever burning yourself in order to purify or find the steel or find the find the molten emotion. I I'm gonna I'm sure I'm butchering the uh the I get the point though. <laughs> but yeah, but but you yeah. recognize it, right? And you know, and we all know people who or we've all seen people rather who have bought into that too heavily and mm -hmm. and done damage uh not necessarily physically but to their to their instrument yeah and i do think you know probably artists like it's good to always grow you know you don't really finish evolving until you're done but there must be plateaus at some point right there's gotta be or like i mean not for everyone. I'm sure a lot of people don't, you know, find that um, because maybe they want to always just continually push. And I think that's that's admirable in some ways. But I think there's also something beautiful about the idea that you push to a certain level and then you explore what is there and then you push to the next level and then explore what is there. Um, because, yeah, there must be something so exhausting and maybe less artistic about just this kind of constant need to one up or like to to um 
I don't know, push yourself at least in a painful way as an artist. Yeah. I mean, I look at Powell and Pressburger's work uh, and you see these, you see the waves that they worked mm -hmm. in the, the sort of yeah. realist kind of magic realist thing that they were doing with movies mm -hmm. like I know where I'm going. And then there's the, the full on uh, fully designed artifice of the red shoes and Colonel blimp yeah. and, and um, tales of Hoffman. And then ultimately Powell ends his career, not intentionally just, because with Peeping Tom and just yeah. runs into the brick wall of making a film that was too psychologically realistic and acute. I mean, for 1960, it's obviously not as it's dated considerably in its in its performance styles and its and its approach. But it's such a remarkable break from what he had been doing mm -hmm. that you feel. I feel like he was pushing his limitations, like he was trying to see how far he could go, and he went too far for the, far. <laughs> the world he was in. The movie's great. Right. I mean, it's a mm -hmm. it's a perfect, it's like the British equivalent of Psycho. It, it is a, a story about a murderer that's told not sympathetically, but empathetically. So you're with okay. this killer um, okay. who who uses his camera's tripod to, to impale women and oh my film God. them at the I same time. Oh, one? you haven't seen it? Yeah. yeah <laughs> I'll have to watch it. Not a spoiler, horribly enough. That's fairly early on. They establish that's his like, MO. That's the first 10 minutes. <laughs> kind of. But it's a really interesting character study yeah. that that plays like a horror movie. I mean, it was a horror movie in 1960, uh, and it's you know it's relatively bloodless because, of course, it was for 1960. Um, right. It's this 65, almost 65 year old movie that that understands where the audience's fascination is going with mm -hmm. with horror, with slasher films, with voyeurism, with with um, with stalkers, mm -hmm. and. You know, this is 12 years away from where he is right now in the red shoes. And he's mm -hmm. playing in this beautiful fantasy uh, to the point where when he came back to what, you know, quote unquote reality, it was too much for people. It, it was, right. it was, it's remarkable. They're like, um, you've wrecked <laughs> our impression of you, basically. Yeah. Well, he was just, he was doing these, these incredible swooning, um, you know, think about Black Narcissus, right? Which is a terrible, dark story. It is, yeah. Filmed in the most epic and beautiful way. Yeah. Um, to to use the contrast of the the like the sort of the the beauty of the natural world against the inner torment that these these characters are going through. Um, right. And the red shoes. There's almost no naturalism to it. It's you know, it's a yeah. stage musical, and it's it's yeah. kind of glorious that way. But yeah. it feels like. And I think this is the reason that people remember it so fondly. It feels like the the kind of technical or expressionism, for lack of a better term, that he's using here is his natural language. That this is right. this is the moment here and in Hoffman and uh, and Black Narcissus where they they found this language. They invented a cinematic language that just hadn't existed before, and they just they made three perfect films with it. Yeah, interesting. Okay, I'm gonna have to uh check out some of their others because I've I've seen Black Narcissus and The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which I really found intriguing. Mm -hmm. Um but I have to catch up on some of this essential cinema. <laughs> I think almost all of them are on the Criterion channel. Probably Peeping Tom isn't, but there's just been a BFI restoration. You can borrow my okay. Blu-ray. Um it's okay. it's like nothing else though. And it really is jarring given how given how conventional uh, Powell's earlier films were in the 40s, like even in the 30s, and then how fanciful they became 
It's just mm-hmm. a, God, I left out a matter of life and death as part of the technicolor language because I keep forgetting so much of it is in black and white. But right. uh, I keep, I forget that it's in some of the best moments are in color. Um, right. It really is this incredible legacy and almost, like, I think it would have been forgotten had it not been for Scorsese's um, mm-hmm. championing of them in the 80s and 90s. He, right. his, the Film Foundation restorations of, of the films have been absolutely gorgeous and he is another artist when you mentioned someone who plateaus and and develops and plateaus and develops scorsese's like had four distinct periods of his career maybe even five at this point where he's found ways to tell stories that are uniquely his own but also so completely universal that i mean something like silence is a meditation on on mortality from and the Irishman too. They're, they're films about getting older that only a man in his eighties could have made. I think with the with the texture, but that I understand in my fifties, I absolutely connect with all of these concerns. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, how I guess with each stage of life, it almost you know you're you're still speaking your own voice, or or it is still sort of um, very much who they are, except it's just evolved to this later time in life. And um, yeah, I, I'm curious, like the life and death of Colonel Blimp, I found really fascinating in that it seems like how it starts. You think you're going to watch this movie all about war, but it's so much about like friendship and aging, which I found so fascinating in the film. Yeah. And it makes me wish that I could have seen more from Powell as he got older. Um, mm-hmm. What themes would have come up? Yeah, there's the film he made with Helen Mirren and James Mason in '69, Age of Consent, which has Didn't. sort of, yeah, it's sort of fallen away. Right now, the only reason people talk about it is because of the near constant nudity, uh, which right. <laughs> you know the, the young Helen Mirren was was the showcase of that film, basically, and, it, right. and not in a prurient way. It actually works for the for the story, but it's one of those things where you watch it and it's like, oh yeah, that's of course that's all anybody would talk about. But it's it's right. a it's a really interesting story about an older artist and a young model, um, kind mm-hmm. of similar in its, it's like a lighter, um, seaside comedy version of La Belle Noises, mm-hmm. uh, that Rivette would make a few years later. Uh, but it's, it's very similarly about the dynamics and, and the sort of romantic power plays that go on in the, in the relationship. But yeah. again, completely unlike anything, uh, they did earlier in the earlier well, films. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, except, except that the themes ways, are there, right? Yeah, some of the themes are kind of there in the red shoes, you know. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Well, I'll have to do a whole retrospective in the in the coming weeks. <laughs> it's a good way to to connect to a different type of cinema, right? Because there yeah. really there really is nothing else. And I've been trying for this entire conversation to figure out how to bring it around to Seagrass because Seagrass <laughs> has aspects of magic realism sort of there's stuff there's stuff going on but it's also a much more grounded and realistic world that all these things happen in so yeah how do you thread that needle i really didn't uh i really didn't choose a film that made any sense in terms of my own work um you know we talked about e or i was like considering that one too and i think that has a lot of more similarities to seagrass in terms of structure and themes um but yeah, no, I thought I'd just, you know, choose something really out there, <laughs> just a wild card. I don't think it really does have a lot in common. Um, but, you know, the only thing that I can really think of and throughout this whole conversation is when we talked about the red shoes and I, I thought a bit about the ghost because 
um, in seagrass only because I think it's a metaphor as well, but I think it, it also doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's real or not. Um, and at the same time, it can be real and maybe unreal at the same time. And I think that's how I feel about the symbolism of the shoes and whether or not they are the ones that ultimately cause her to fall to her death or not. Yeah. If you need yeah. it to be real, it can be. Yeah. Right. Like if you can't, if you as a viewer can't possibly conceive of a film working without it, it's one of those weird little things. It's like the ghost that opens the door in The Shining. That, that yeah. has to be real. It's the one concrete moment where the supernatural and the natural world inarguably coexist is that one mm -hmm. moment. And then later when Wendy starts having visions of her own and then we get led into the larger world, but, but the way Kubrick made the movie, other than that moment where the ghosts open the door and let him let Jack out of the freezer, there's nothing in there that can't be explained by his deterioration, that it works perfectly right. as a psychological story. Whereas in Seagrass, I had no, is this a spoiler? I guess it's not really, because we're talking about ambiguity ambivalence yeah I, I had no doubt in my mind that the, that that was happening that, that the ghost was real well that something was yeah. there that there was some yeah. sort of paranormal aspect to it and it's simply because we see it through the kids and the kids you know experience everything on a on a most on a primal level right they, they're seeing yeah. what's really there they're seeing what's really there in their parents relationship before the parents realize it which is why the film is so powerful i agree i see it as real too <laughs> But I think kind of going back to what you said a couple minutes ago, if you need it to be unreal, it can be too. And I think yeah. just the opposite, because I think that, um, and same with the red shoes, like if you need it to be unreal, it can be, it doesn't need to be the red shoes causing this. If you can't wrap your head around that psychologically, it can be the real emotions that are causing this as well. Um, and I think it's the same with the ghost. It can be the real emotions that this, this feeling represents rather than an actual ghost itself. Um, but I agree, but it's real. <laughs> <laughs> I thought so. Um, <laughs> well, and above and beyond that, um, I'm, you know, Sarah Gadden's in your movie and she That's... trained as a ballerina. Have you I had the chance? I did not know that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh my she, gosh. She went to the National Ballet. I was just wondering if you'd ever had the chance to talk about the, I mean, I'm sure she's seen it. She's a cinephile. Well, now I have to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not know that, but, but that does not surprise me. I feel like she's probably great at any kind of artistic pursuit that she has. Um, but yeah, now, now I'll be looking forward to, to talking to her about that. I'll see if we can get a Q&A going. Yeah, exactly. I'll have to brush up on all my ballet films. And I don't, to be honest, it's, I'm not like, I don't know a lot about ballet. I'm not this person who watches all the dance films, but it's just this one that I find especially intriguing, actually. Uh, I mean, there isn't anything like it. I think every, oh. I, I would wager every ballet movie since has tried to be the Red Shoes in some way, because mm -hmm. it's because it's a really simple narrative to digest, but to understand the texture of it and the and the psychological versus the philosophical and the, and the conflicts that they structure over and over again within the movie. It's like an echo chamber of that one question. You're like, would you, why do you, why do you, what was it? Why do you dance? Why do you live? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And would you, would you die for it? But really it's not. Um, yeah. I read this on Wikipedia too, actually, but it, it was a really good point, which is that, um, that's what I think um, 
Pressman was saying that, or sorry, Powell, I'm mixing up their, putting together their two names, but I think that um, he was saying that he wanted to um, make a film that was about essentially, would she die for her art? But, you know, it really wasn't actually that in the end. I don't think that was what the message ended up being. It was more about these two other people kind of making her die for, you know, her for her choices. Ooh, that's a perfect out. Okay. That was perfect, actually. Chills. Okay. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> okay. Oh, I feel man. like I totally muddied what I was saying, but it was a button. No, no, no. You <laughs> stuck the landing. That was great. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you do you are you happy with this? Could we do is there anything you wanted to get to that we didn't? It felt pretty No, I mean, I think we touched on everything. I hope I touched on the female perspective enough, but I think so. I think so, yeah. Um, yeah, like there's there's a lot in there. It's like a confusing film to watch in a weird way, like the the message around women, because a part of me it was like, is this like a strange kind of bad message? But that's really, I think when you look at all of the layers, it's actually kind of the opposite or it's both at once. So yeah, I found it really, I hope that I did that part justice because that was what I was like really kind of swirling around in my head. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it allows mm -hmm. for Vicky to be fully realized mm -hmm. even as it sort of chips away at her. Totally. It, that's what I mean. <laughs> All the stressors yeah. are out, are external. Everything is coming at her from the outside. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so she ends up disintegrating, but it's not because of her weakness. No, I think that's what's that's what's really important, and that's the thing that um, so many other ballet movies forget. They they need to treat dancers as delicate, so they make the women vulnerable in a way that yeah. they might not otherwise be. Because you need to have a spine of steel to do this. Yeah, and she does in many ways. Mm -hmm. My thanks to Meredith Hammer Brown, whose excellent first feature, Seagrass, opens across North America this Friday, February twenty third. And in Toronto, if you come to the TIFF Lightbox for the 2.30 p.m. show on Sunday the 25th, Meredith and cinematographer Norm Lee will be joining me there for an intro and Q&A. It'll be worth it. Thanks also to Nicola Pender. She knows what she did. You can find Meredith on Instagram at Meredith Hammer Brown, all one word. And you can find the red shoes in 4K and Blu-ray special editions from the Criterion Collection built around a glorious restoration. It's also streaming on the Criterion channel with an excellent archival commentary track and testimonials from Greta Gerwig and Brad Bird, and available to rent and buy on various VOD services across North America. Also, Criterion just announced a 4K edition of Peeping Tom. It's coming in May. Keep an eye peeled. You can find me on Blue Sky at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Simcast. Yes, E-M-Cast. And on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhep.com slash Simcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your new booster when you can. I'll see you next week.